This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Islamic fundamentalist group, the Taliban, have returned to power in Afghanistan 20 years after being ousted by the United States, sparking concern for a harsh rule imposed on Afghans, a neglect of human rights, and the beginning of a humanitarian crisis for the region. For neighbouring countries, the initial shock of transition is being met with pragmatism of coping with the aftermath. The Taliban has sought to boost diplomacy with neighbouring countries, and many are looking to make the most of the power vacuum left by US forces. For other regional countries, the Taliban's return to power represents a security risk and the proliferation of violence. Here to discuss the effects of Afghanistan and the Taliban on regional security is Dr. Niamatala Ibrahimi, lecturer in international relations at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Niamat. Thank you, Matt, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you in this show. So it's been two months since the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan, and in that time, uh, the dust has settled a bit, and we've had a lot of reports trickle through about the harsh conditions being imposed on the country. What's your impression been of the development so far? Over the past two months now, we see how in Afghanistan rule by the Taliban looks like. Uh, if I sum it up in one word, I think it is really a tragedy for the people of Afghanistan and the civilian population with quite significant implications for regional and international security. Uh, Afghanistan now has an extreme government which are set up by the Taliban and that extreme government has been anything but exclusive, hardline, dominated by uh, some of the most um, radical wings of the Taliban, has got many ministers who are on the UN blacklist, Uh, some of them are also blacklisted by the United States and other countries around the world. At the same time, we're also seeing a number of important developments in Afghanistan, I think, in two fronts. One is quite a dramatic rollback of civil and political rights in Afghanistan, growing human rights abuses across the country. The Taliban has reinstituted what they call the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Even though they have not officially pronounced a new constitution, how the new government will look like. So on paper, there's a lot of ambiguity on how they will rule Afghanistan. However, in practice, they have sort of reinstituted what they tried to establish in Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. This is uh, a clerical establishment with the Taliban leader, the supreme leader, commander of the faithful, the Muslim, as they call it. And then there is an extreme government in Kabul. And that has meant in practice a massive rollback of civil and political rights. And also these trends have particularly dire consequences for the most vulnerable groups in Afghanistan. Uh, we have uh, seen reports of the Taliban uh, rolling back uh, the civic and political space for women of Afghanistan. 
There are some areas where there are reports of Taliban allowing girls to go to secondary school as well. But for most of the country, there is now a de facto ban on girls going to school beyond grade six. And at the same time, there's also an institutionalization of sectarian violence on the Shia Hazara population of Afghanistan. We have seen reports of mass forced displacement of thousands of Hazara families from uh, the provinces of Daikundi, some parts of Ghazni, and also Helmand and the province of Balkh in the northern city of Mazar sharif in particular. And while all of this happens, there's also a quite a rapidly escalating humanitarian emergency in Afghanistan. That was, by the way, uh, long in the making before the takeover of the country by the Taliban on 15th of August of this year. But now with the freezing of international aid and also the way the pandemic and a drought has also affected the economy of the country, more than half of the population of Afghanistan now needs some form of humanitarian assistance. And according to the UN, one out of three people in Afghanistan now are in a situation of emergency food insecurity. That means they may not be able to sustain themselves. And at the same time, we have also seen quite widespread reluctance on the part of countries in the region, but also around the world, in accepting the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. The Taliban hasn't been able to translate their military victory into any form of domestic legitimacy in Afghanistan. They haven't been able to come up with any sorts of mechanism where they can also secure some form of popular legitimacy in Afghanistan. And that lack of legitimacy internally in Afghanistan has also meant that countries around the region and also all over the world have been very reluctant to extend any formal diplomatic recognition to the government of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Okay, we'll get to those uh, countries specifically in a minute. But one thing that I'm a bit keen to unpack is that you had 20 years or so of, of progress in one way or another, whether it was uh, healthcare, education, infrastructure under the US forces in Afghanistan. Has all of that been rolled back or is there anything remaining of the, the 20 years of investment that US and NATO forces had in the area? Well, I think there are different aspects of what are broadly described as the gains after 20 years of international intervention in Afghanistan. Some of those gains are in the areas of expansion of basic public services, such as education, health services, and also development of infrastructure in Afghanistan across the country. With the assistance of the international community, Afghanistan made some massive gains. And now, those gains are already under threat because many of those services were also dependent on the incoming of aid from international donors, institutions such as the IMF, the World Bank, but also donor countries were providing important assistance that were making it possible for the government of Afghanistan to provide those critical services across the country. But now that the aid is no longer coming through, many of those services at the local level are just falling apart. Uh, we are hearing reports of uh, schools closing, health services closing at the sub-national level in particular. And also, we have also seen that many of the country's educated professionals, uh, be doctors, engineers, 
and the civil society groups, and government professionals, bureaucrats, and have also left the country. What we are now witnessing is that a lot of those gangs are, in fact, just disappearing at the local level. There are hospital buildings, but doctors are not there, you know, medicines are not coming through. Also, there are school buildings, but many teachers have left in many parts of the country. The teachers are not getting paid by the new government, the, the ancient government of the Taliban. And if you also add it to the challenges of Taliban side governance, where many of those bureaucrats also feel insecure in returning to their jobs. You know, in some areas, I think we're hearing reports that some professionals have resumed their work, especially in banking and finance sector. But it is very uncertain whether the new government under the Taliban will be able to pay them their salaries. And that leaves huge question marks for the long-term sustainability of the services and institutions in that If country. we could turn now to the region and how they're assessing and adjusting to these developments, there has been the expectation that a neighbouring superpower will step into Afghanistan and fill the void left by US forces. So how are neighbouring countries approaching the new dynamic just kind of broadly? And then we'll go into a few specific countries. Well, I think you know, to make sense of the how countries in the region respond to the fall of Afghanistan in the hand of the Taliban, we should also look at how those countries have very different set of strategic and security interests when it comes to Afghanistan. At one level, you know, some countries have pursued a strategy of trying to dominate the politics of Afghanistan. And in this case, Pakistan comes out uh, quite clearly on the top of the list as one of those really interventionist countries in the region that sees Afghanistan as a weak state where it wishes to exert influence and dominate the politics and security dynamics of that country. And then there are other countries that are more concerned with more the fallout of the violence and instability on Afghanistan on their situation. This would be, for example, some countries in Central Asia, Iran has also a similar level of tactical, pragmatic approach when it comes to Afghanistan. It doesn't entertain any hope of dominating the politics and security landscape of Afghanistan, but it tries to exercise influence in a more pragmatic manner. But many of those countries were also following the strategies that were primarily shaped by the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. While many of those countries were benefiting from the way uh, the U.S. intervention helped you know, somewhat stabilize Afghanistan and contain some of the security threats resulting from Afghanistan. They were also quite concerned about the long-term ambitions and interests of the U.S. Uh, in using Afghanistan to pursue broader programs of uh, a strategic you know, transformation in that region. While many countries have welcomed, in, in a way, the departure of the United States from Afghanistan, it is also creating important security risks for countries in the region, including Pakistan, China, Russia, as well as Iran. Almost all of these countries have some groups from their countries who are now allies of the Taliban and jihadist groups. And they're all very, very concerned about what the Taliban control of Afghanistan mean for the future activities of these groups and their influence on the security situation across the region. 
And China seems uh, to be the one major power uh, where the Taliban has a lot of hopes. They see it as a principal backer that could potentially fill in some of the gaps that were left by the departure of the U.S. from Afghanistan. And those set of concerns that I already mentioned also remains true for China as well. The Chinese are concerned about you know, some militant groups in Afghanistan from the Xinjiang region who are active. But at the same time, you know, feeling that gap which was left by the United States is also quite an enormous one. It takes huge political, financial and economic investment in Afghanistan that we are yet to see being committed by China. Yeah, yeah. Well, China's already made a lot of inroads into doing that. They've met officially and sat down with the Taliban and got assurances, if I can put it that way, that extremists won't be trained in Afghanistan or given access to resources there. So they've got a lot at stake there, but what do they stand to benefit from engaging with Taliban? I get the impression that there's a lot of resources that they'd like access to. They'd like a bit of stability for their Belt and Road plans in the area. China have like maybe two sets of interests. The more immediate one is security. They would not like to see a Taliban controlled Afghanistan become a source of security threats, especially in some of these East Turkestan Islamic movement militants could find sanctuary and from there threatened uh, security situation in Xinjiang region. In addition to that, China also has an important interest for a long time on Afghanistan's mineral resources. In 2007, the then government of Afghanistan awarded the Chinese I said own company MCC in a war to extract copper from uh, uh, INAC in the Afghanistan's province of Lugar, which is one of the largest copper deposits in the world. It was worth 2.9 billion US dollars at that time. But at the same time, the question is to what extent you know, China can be willing to invest in creating a long-term uh, security and political stability in Afghanistan, where these sorts of long-term investments could be feasible. Even in 2007, when they secured the contract, they couldn't move ahead extracting those resources because of security concerns. And there are no guarantees that Afghanistan, controlled by the Taliban at the moment, will be a stable Afghanistan because of all of those myriad of challenges that I already mentioned. All right, so if we could move on to Pakistan, which there is a close relationship between the Taliban and Pakistan. And Prime Minister Imran Khan has uh, urged the world community to support the Taliban government and help the country with much needed humanitarian aid, which at the moment has been uh, largely paused. So is there a high hope of engagement on the ground level between these two countries? Well, there is already quite a high level of engagement between the Taliban government in Kabul and the Pakistani officials. Uh, the victory of the Taliban in Afghanistan is really a strategic win for Pakistan, especially it is a military establishment in the regional dynamics of Afghanistan because they have long been focused on supporting proxy groups to gain control of Afghanistan. And through those sorts of groups, Pakistan has always wished to install a pro-Pakistan, a pro-Islamabad government in Kabul. Now, they have that sort of government in Kabul, where they have quite a high level of influence on various levels of the government now. Within the Taliban, we know that the Haqqani network, 
believed to be closest to Pakistan is now in control of Kabul. So at that level, Pakistan has really achieved a major strategic breakthrough in establishing dominance in Afghanistan, especially in key security sectors in Kabul. But at the same time, Pakistan had a similar concern like other countries around foreign jihadist fighters in Afghanistan, most specifically they are concerned about the revival of Tehrik Taliban in Pakistan, Pakistan-based movement, which was inspired by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and they have close operational as well as ideological connections with the Taliban in Afghanistan. In recent months and weeks, we have seen increased support of Tehrik Taliban in Pakistan activities in many parts of Pakistan as well. And there is also a risk that might also embolden other extremist groups in Pakistan as well. So I think at the strategic level, the Pakistanis, especially the military establishment, have achieved quite an important strategic victory in Afghanistan, especially by weakening a government. But on the practical level, they must also be quite concerned about the fallout of the Taliban victory in Afghanistan for their own domestic politics and security but also in terms of the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan that might also impact Pakistan as well. All right, so finally, uh, we'll turn to Iran, which seems to be mostly pleased with Taliban successes, or maybe more so with the US failures and, and them vacating the areas. So besides political interests, there are strong economic ties between the two countries. And there's also the fact that there's more than 2 million Afghan refugees currently in Iran's territory. So does Iran want stability in this region above everything else? Is that their main priority? Well, we should remember that Tehran was one of the few countries in the region that enthusiastically supported the US intervention in Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, in fact, was a quite important intelligence and other forms of assistance to the United States in 2001 when they tried to overthrow the Taliban regime. But they changed their course after they became increasingly concerned about the long-term ambition of the United States, especially after President Bush declared Iran as part of the axis of evil in 2003. So in recent years, they established quite important connections with the Taliban, financial as well as military training, um, because they saw the Taliban as a bulwark against the long-term US ambition in Afghanistan. They could use the Taliban to help the United States. Tehran has also been very concerned about the rise of the Islamic State, which also established a local affiliate in Afghanistan, Pakistan region called the Islamic State Khorasan. So, you know, in the face of these two strategic and security threats, Iranian security agencies saw in Taliban a potential ally. But now that the United States is gone, I believe officials in Tehran were also quite disappointed with the way the Taliban initially established an extreme government that excluded some important elements of the Taliban that are traditionally seen as close to the Iranians. There are now some new appointments that are apparently responding to those concerns of Iranians, but at the same time, Iran is also quite concerned about you know, the fact that the Taliban is very exclusive in its government structure. It doesn't include other groups in Afghanistan who are traditionally very close to Iran. So I think Iran, in a way, can rejoice with the departure of the United States, but they are also 
concern about the fallout of the Taliban victory for their influence in Afghanistan politically, but also economically, because Iran had emerged as an important economic player in Afghanistan as well. All right. We'll take a couple of questions from the audience now. I've got one question here, which is from Andrew Farhan. Andrew, if you'd like to ask your question of Niamat, mostly I, I like this question because it's cricket related and it'll give you a, a chance to talk about uh, India's reaction to all of this. Andrew, can you hear me? Go ahead. I can hear you. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Okay. Or, or some, I hope possibly some light relief in this, but it is curious. It's curious that India has done more, if not everything, to support Afghan cricketers in Pakistan, despite Pakistan being led by a former leading test cricketer, Imran Khan. I suspect there's some confused values in all this. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for that question. I do not specialize in cricket in that much, but I think I would agree with you that India has played quite an important role in supporting the development of cricket. It's emerges as a major sport in Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan is quite a new player in the field of cricket around the world, and they have made some really impressive victories in recent years. And if you see that, I think that would fit with the broader Indian strategy towards Afghanistan uh, since 2001, which was uh, investing in the field of culture, providing important uh, uh, support to Afghanistan's young generation through its scholarship. Uh, they really provide a very large number of scholarship to Afghanistan students who study in Indian universities. They also invested in schools, uh, the health sector, but also some very critical infrastructure in Afghanistan as well. So India was focused on developing this sort of long-term strategy of uh, pursuing soft power in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. But at the same time, the government, which was working with India to secure these gains, is no longer in place. I think Indians are also quite concerned about the long-term stability of Afghanistan and what the Chinese regime means for the sustainability of those Indian investments in Afghanistan, including in the field of culture, sports and education. I'm getting the impression that regionally in the area, there's a lot of concern about stability and also of extremism, but everyone's being very pragmatic and waiting and seeing what happens to see if things settle down. There's not too many tears being shed about the US forces leaving, I don't think. Is, is that an accurate impression? I mean, India's also seems to be caught up with this. There was a lot of initial anger about the situation. There were initial calls for action, but now everything's calmed down a bit. Well, I think things have calmed down to some extent, but it hasn't really mean that those concerns that are shared across the region are addressed by the Taliban government in Afghanistan. From the perspective of Indians, I think they have uh, some important concerns about the long-term stability of Afghanistan, implications for security of Indians. From past history, we know that the Taliban has close linkages with some of the uh, transnational or Pakistani-based militant groups such as Lashkar-e-Tayyiba and others that were operating from within uh, the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. And the Taliban political leadership has been trying to assure countries in the region that they will not allow these groups to use areas under their control to threaten other countries. However, at the same time, it is not very clear how the Taliban will go about it. 
And there are quite substantial amount of reports that suggest that these groups are active in Afghanistan. There have been reports that the Taliban have been trying to secure an agreement with these groups uh, on a group-to-group basis, but we really do not have any good level of details as to how the Taliban will be able to secure these agreements in practice. And if they have that sort of agreement, whether they will be in a position to enforce it, because the Taliban are also quite deeply embedded within this transnational network of jihadist groups. If they go very hard against any of these foreign jihadist groups, they may also risk losing their legitimacy in the eyes of other jihadist groups as well. So I think there is quite a substantial concern among many senior Taliban leaders about how they will be seen both internationally, but also among their rank and file members, both within the Taliban, but also supporters in other extremist groups as well. All right, we'll take uh, another question now, just a, a couple of quick ones maybe. Uh, Paul White, uh, can I get you to ask your question to Niamat, please? Sure. I was just wondering about this Troika Plus that I noticed met in Moscow very recently. Is that some sort of configuration working with the UN that will actually have a, a strong influence or is it really just a one-off meeting that won't go far, do you think? Thanks, Doctor. Thank you, Paul, for that question. There have been many initiatives recently around Afghanistan to discuss some form of regional cooperation or approach to the situation in Afghanistan. With the Troika meeting, the Moscow format meeting, as it's called now, uh, was convened. It included representatives from uh, countries in the region around Afghanistan, including Russia. But the United States refused to send a delegation there, citing technical reasons or logistical reasons, if I remember the word correctly. However, I think there are very serious conflicts of interest in the strategies of you know, different countries in the region. You know, this is a region where regional cooperation has been always very difficult, and I think that is partly the reason that Afghanistan's war and stability has lasted for so long, for decades now. Uh, and that was the reason that contributed to the civil war in Afghanistan during the 1990s, where countries in the region were not able to secure their influence through some form of regional agreement in Afghanistan. So instead, they tried to work with factions in Afghanistan using them as their proxies to advance their interests. And I think that was, in fact, the regional context in which Afghanistan became a country where conflict of the Taliban came to power in the 1990s. So now the question is whether countries in the region can try to avoid that. I think there have been a lot of bilateral, multilateral, trilateral uh, negotiations between countries in the region. Pakistan has been quite keen participant in these talks as well. Russia has tried to play quite an important role. China has been playing quite an important role in these talks as well. But you know, whether these talks result in any sort of substantive outcomes, I think will remain to be seen. And a lot really also depends on whether the Taliban have the capacity and capability to develop a government system that responds to both domestic as well as regional concerns. In weak countries such as Afghanistan, I think that is really key. The government in Kabul must be able to present various interests in Afghanistan and those of the countries in the region, at least those countries in the region, shouldn't feel threatened by the government in Kabul. And so far, I think that situation has been really 
uncertain there's a lot of uncertainties by countries in the region especially the way Pakistan and ISI has exercised influence in the Indian government in Kabul which means that other countries including some in Central Asia have been really concerned about what that will mean if the Pakistan is really secure the hegemony of Afghanistan what would that mean for Pakistan's ambition and interest in that region more broadly so i think that explains you know the really long term wait and see game that have at least you know gone for over two months all right we'll take one final question now brian timms if you would like to ask your question of niamat please Yes, look, um, Afghanistan's in dire economic straits, and of course there are massive humanitarian issues. The Taliban must have known that this was going to be the case, surely, before they took over. So how did they expect to govern economically, and did they expect the international community to ultimately just jump in, bail them out, and uh, help them move forward, mainly on a humanitarian and economic basis? Is that what they expected? Thank you, Brian. That's a really important question, and I'm afraid we don't have a clear answer to this question because we really are not aware of some of those internal deliberations within the Taliban. This is a very complex political and military movement that has got different layers to it. I think some in the Taliban's political circles, especially those in Doha, were hoping. that they would transition to some form of government where they will gain some international legitimacy international aid that will be putting them in a position so that they can respond to this dire economic and humanitarian situation that was developing in Afghanistan in recent years however i think the events in the ground i think developed quite differently it was mainly decided by taliban's military wings between may and august the taliban launched really massive military offensive across afghanistan and i think those military figures within the taliban were not very concerned about the long term governance of afghanistan at the national level they would be more concerned with their immediate tactical gains at the local level that they would also put them in a stronger position in a new regime that they felt was uh, going to be dominated by their group so i think now that they are in power they are certainly i think some people within the taliban who would like to have a sort of international assistance so that they can respond to this the dire economic conditions but at the same time the taliban has its own very strong internal dynamics uh, i think the extreme government they announced in kabul has been really a disaster for their capacity to secure both domestic confidence in the capability to govern but also international in their capability you know they have been putting all the wrong figures in key positions of power that sends all the wrong signals to both the domestic communities in Afghanistan but also major actors internationally uh, so i think as a result of that government now i think security concern about taliban government seems to be topping international agenda there is now a broad recognition that the international community must respond to humanitarian situation in Afghanistan by providing aid but that aid must not go to the taliban government because the taliban government has proven itself incapable of 
responding to this, some of those really serious domestic as well as international concerns around issues of uh, terrorism, human rights, and inclusion of different groups within Afghanistan. It's a uh, very troubling and complicated situation, and unfortunately it's the people of Afghanistan who have to live with it and deal with it. Thank you very much for your time today, Niamat. Hopefully we can have you back on the podcast again in the future with uh, better news to discuss. Thank you, Matt, for having me. And thank you, everyone, for participating. Lovely to be here. Thanks, everyone, for your great questions. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast.